2: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: This week, we have a break from the birth pangs of the English Revolution and after the raw emotion of Stratford's desperate and brave fight for survival. I think it'd be good to have a bit of space to breathe, examine our feelings and emotions, get in touch with ourselves again, look up at the birds and the bees, connect with nature again. And with that in mind, I have for you a special treat this week, a guest episode. I came across the Three Ravens podcast quite by chance when I was whistling in a dark wood one day and a voice came from the Stygian gloom and said, Oi! stop making that horrible noise and listen to the three ravens instead. Despite this not really being in the classic tradition of a ghost story, I did as the spirits commended me. And I loved the podcast in return. Eleanor and Martin discuss the folk traditions in all the 39 historic counties of England, and they have a great format. Some of the history of the county, some chat, myths, and then a wonderful folk story to finish up. Really creative. I love the sense of place, the storytelling fun, and the love of it all. And it's a great way to take a break from death, mayhem, despair, and chaos. Well, not from death, actually. It's quite a bit of that. Or despair, in fact. But, you know, it's fun. And they do have a hoot together. So, what you have here is an exclusive early bird viewing of their next episode about Yorkshire. Obviously being well in advance of official publication, this is you to say, so you can't tell anyone. But you can tell everyone to search for the Three Ravens podcast in a podcatcher near you. I hope you enjoy it. And spookily, Martin is also doing an episode for members about William Wordsworth this very day to boot. So we are essentially were achieving Martin Mass. And I'll see you all next week. Cheery bye. That
1: sound you can hear is a noise I consider to be quintessentially English. Sure, you'll hear it in African nations and in India, but you heard it here first. And no prizes for guessing. It is, of course, the sound of a steam engine. This particular engine runs along the Bluebell Railway in Sussex. It's called Camelot but today's episode is set in Yorkshire, home of the first public railway in the world. The Lake Lock Railroad was built near Wakefield in West Yorkshire way back in 1798. It wasn't a steam railway then. Horses used to drag rail carts along it. But what those carts were transporting was coal the very same coal that was used on the first ever commercial steam railway in the world. That one, funnily enough, was also in Yorkshire, the Middleton Railway near Leeds. It just so happens that during the last series of the Three Ravens podcast, I ended up talking a lot about water. Makes sense. Vast numbers of folktales revolve around it. But let's not forget the importance of fire in folklore too. What coal unlocked for the English people changed the world in any number of ways and the use of steam to power machines combining those two primal elements arrived at a time in history where magic was falling out of fashion to be replaced by the cold, hard glare of empiricism. And yet... The beady eyes of science have their blind spots. Places where the unexplainable continues to huff and puff and dance and jig, not giving two hoots about something as prosaic as rational explanation. With this thought in mind, gather close around the Three Ravens campfire and listen in. Welcome. the Three Ravens podcast.
0: There were three ravens sat on a tree Down a down Hey, down a down They were as black as they might be with a down
1: One of them said to his mate Where shall we upwreck Take with down, dairy, 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 down, down. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Three Ravens podcast, this one released on the History of England feed weeks before it's set to appear in our second series. If you're new to the podcast, my name's Martin Vaux. I'm a storyteller, writer and English romanticism obsessive, and I'm joined as ever by my partner in crime and all dark arts, award-winning poet, playwright, Shakespeare scholar and witch, Eleanor Connolly. Hello
2: and hello History of England listeners, not least those who heard our advert on David's podcast a few weeks ago and contributed to the massive spike that created in our listenership. Yeah,
1: it was fantastic when that happened. Now, As this is a bit of a strange episode not going out on the main Three Ravens feed, we won't be doing any updates on correspondence and so on, but please do consider following us on facebook.com forward slash three Ravens Podcast, Instagram at three ravenspodcast, and on Twitter via at three ravenspod.
2: Also, we do have a Patreon, so if you're able and would like to support our podcast, then please consider subscribing for exclusive content, including Patreon-only episodes, our monthly newsletter full of folk customs and tarot. Mm-hmm. spreads, magic spells, and other goodies. And you'll find that at patreon.com forward slash three Podcast.
1: So David is releasing this episode on Saturday the 3rd of June, an excellent day for folk customs. Depending on where you are, there are a few things to consider attending, including the Abingdon Morris Dancing Festival in Oxfordshire, the Pusey Town Criers competition in Wiltshire, and possibly coolest, the Biddeford Bridge Foot race in Devon.
2: I'm sorry, I have to go back to the town criers competition. Yeah, that's right. How is it judged?
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know. It's going to be tough, isn't it? (laughs) The
2: loudest oye. Well, you'd hope so. We have to know more. (laughs) Yeah,
1: we do. Well, I'm hoping (laughs) that we can find some information, like a press release, or maybe even a video. Oh, I really hope there's a video. Anyway, this is a fun one, the Biddeford Bridge Foot Race, because the Biddeford Long Bridge, which spans the River Torridge, is the longest medieval bridge in England. Wow. It's 222 yards long, with 24 arches keeping it up, and it was built after Richard Gurney, the 13th century parish priest, had a vision that the bridge should be built there to stop so many people drowning. That's a
2: great way to choose public architecture. Do you think somebody had a vision of HS2?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, but I I can't imagine that their vision has been what's happened.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, not quite.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Unless it was a nightmare.
2: Keep dreaming.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, the foot race was established as a charity event in the Tudor period to help pay for the upkeep of the bridge. It's owned by the people of the town, unlike most bridges, which are like, Uh, owned by the government. Mm. Um, So so they kept up this tradition of of paying for it locally. Although the Biddeford foot race is not the oldest foot race in Britain. That prize goes to the Cornwaffe Red Hose Race, which was founded in 1508 by Royal Charter. Do
2: you have to run it while wearing red socks?
1: No, you win a pair of Ah. red stockings if you're successful. Anyway... At Biddeford, there isn't a particular prize, but contestants will start running at 7.55 by the town clock and must get to the end of the bridge before the clock strikes eight. That's a great way to measure a race. It is, isn't it? Now, the other interesting folk event, which runs in June, but only every three years, are appropriately for this episode, the York Mystery Place. Have you heard of the York Mystery Place? I certainly have. They're, they're pretty famous, aren't they? Now, they started in the 14th century and ran last year so sadly won't be on in 2023 but they're a set of 48 plays originally performed by the medieval guilds of york which illustrate the christian history of the world from creation to the last judgment the official website says the plays contain and i quote stories of delight humor horror temptation and resistance
2: Oh, fantastic. Um, um, The mystery plays that I have encountered uh, often feature a very fabulous Lucifer. Oh, really? Oh, yes, speaking in alliterative verse and certainly very tempting.
1: (laughs) Well, anyone who's listened to more than one episode of the Three Ravens podcast will know we quite like the devil.
2: (laughs) Yes, we are fans of alternate depictions of the Dark
1: Lord, aren't we? (laughs) Now, one thing that's really cool about the York mystery plays is the historic york guilds and companies still run the event with the british library having the sole surviving copy of the original manuscript of the york mystery plays and the york festival trust is held in high regard in the academic world regularly holding conferences that bring together the international community of mystery play scholars.
2: Oh, I'd like to be in that community. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, all of this, of course, means that the county criers on our podcast have no excuse and can't tell us they're too busy rehearsing for the York Mystery Plays to ring us in to Yorkshire.
2: Come on, you indolent thespians. There's not another York Mystery Play for three years. <laughs> Get to work. Oh yay, oh, yay. yay.
1: The historic county of Yorkshire is located in the north-east of England. It's bordered by... deep breath... ...County Durham to the north, Westmoreland to the north Lancashire to the west, Cheshire and Derbyshire to the southwest, oh, Second Breath, uh, Nottinghamshire and Lincolnshire to the south east, and the North Sea to the east. Well done. Thank you. So, the first question why is Yorkshire surrounded by so much stuff? <laughs> well, Yorkshire is England's largest county by a long way. We're talking almost 15,000 square kilometres, so over 9,000 square miles in old money. Its nearest competition is Lincolnshire, which doesn't even scrape 7,000 square kilometres. That's like 4,000 square miles. So under half the size of Yorkshire. It's huge. It's massive. And because it's so ginormous, Yorkshire has been split into different parts and councils and authorities loads of times in its history, including the ancient three ridings of East Riding, North Riding and West Riding. In case you're curious, riding means thirding in old norse
2: so like a third yeah ah that's interesting so a riding is a third
1: yeah that's right and another cool thing all of the boundaries of the ridings start at the city walls in ancient york which is pretty groovy anyway all of these subdivisions mean it's quite difficult to pin down an overall yorkshire motto although the people of yorkshire famously refer to the county as god's own country which I think trumps all other motto contenders, to be honest. Yeah,
2: it's a bit of a mic drop, isn't it? It (laughs) is,
1: it is. Now, it's a funny mantra to have because Yorkshire may be God's own country, but if it is, then we're definitely talking about a vengeful Old Testament-style God. The region has had a heck of a time. Um, Before Yorkshire became Yorkshire, it was initially ruled over by a people we call the Hen Oglet, the old northerners they were split into tribes including the brigantes who we talked about a bit during our county durham and lancashire episodes and the parisi who ruled to the east then along came the romans with their big swords and they established a capital in the brigantian region known as isurium brigantum which was near the modern day village of aldborough The Roman road of Deer Street actually runs through Oldborough on the way to Hadrian's Wall on the border with Scotland. And there's a pretty cool Roman city museum at Oldborough that's in the hands of English heritage. Now, the Roman focus on the region was actually really focused on Eboracum, the joint capital of Roman Britain, which would later become Yorkshire's historic county town of York. But Mm. not yet Spaniard. Not yet. Around 500 years after the Romans left England, a series of feuding Celtic kingdoms sprung up in the region with their big spears, including the Kingdom of Dera, the Kingdom of Ebrauch and the Kingdom of Elmet. Plus, during this period, there was a series of influxes of German Angles, as well as Danes, Franks and Huns with their big boats, all of which jostled with the Kingdom of Northumbria to the north with their own big weapons
2: wow yeah it was quite desirable for invaders
1: yeah it was it was seen as a really important place i guess because it's so big there's lots of great little river inlets lots of nice coast but you've just got this constant kind of maelstrom of this lot killing that lot and this lot killing that lot this lot being invaders and then settling for a bit and then leaving because they keep being attacked by that lot and it just kind of keeps on happening again and again and again Now, Northumbria was obviously quite a powerful neighbour to have. At one point, it stretched from the Irish Sea on England's west coast all the way over to the North Sea on the east coast, then from Edinburgh in Scotland right down to Sheffield in South Yorkshire, which is pretty beefy. Beefy like a red oxo cube straight in your mouth. That's rich (laughs) gravy, that is. Then around 865, along came the Vikings with their big axes and what was known as, and I quote from the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, the great heathen army <laughs> now have you ever heard of the great heathen army
2: no but if i ever started punk band that's what i'm going to call it <laughs> yeah that's a
1: great name for a punk band well if you ever watch the delightfully silly tv series vikings then that attempts to offer a deeply ahistorical account of this period with the five sons of legendary hero ragnar lodbrook including the wonderfully named ivar the boneless a <laughs> rocking and a rolling through northumbria was
2: he boneless
1: it's a big question. Some people think that he might have been disabled and so he was carried places. Oh, I see. Um, so there's a whole so his load... bones
2: weren't strong enough yeah, to support him. That's right. I like the idea he was just really
1: flexible. Yeah, <laughs> that he could just do backbends.
2: Yeah, just confuse the invading armies with his amazing stretches.
1: Yeah, he'd done Viking Pilates. <laughs>
2: Over the hypermobile.
1: Yes, that's right. (laughs) Uh, Now, it's from this period that we get the names York and Yorkshire. This is because the Norse raiders and invaders came along and established the kingdom of Jorvik, spelt J-O-R-V-I-K, with the capital at what was once Eboracum, which they simply called Jorvik. Jorvik, York, Jorvikskaya, Yorkshire. Lovely. Yeah. Now, as you might have been able to predict, it wasn't just plain sailing for the kingdom of Jorvik either. Of not. <laughs> because at the same time, Alfred the Great and Guthrum, king of East Anglia, had established the Danelaw, which we've also talked about on previous episodes. This huge territory was even richer gravy than Northumbria. <laughs> In case you're unfamiliar, the Danelaw was governed by a single set of laws, which covered most of Eastern England. And where the Danelaw met the kingdom of Jorvik, well, the dueling gravies got a bit spicy.
2: I'm waiting for you to tell me that gravy is produced somewhere in Yorkshire, so this (laughs) lengthy gravy metaphor will make perfect
1: sense. It's not. I'm just really into gravy right now. (laughs) Uh, Now, Jorvik fell after about a century of fighting, and you might think... Okay, done, enough murder and mayhem. But wait, because in an important year, this bloke called Tostig and his friend Harold were just kind of working on re-establishing the kingdom of Jorvik when somebody's elbow slipped and, and boy, did the gravy get spicier still. Now, in case my metaphors are getting overly mixed, we're talking 1066, baby. If you remember your history, Harold II, a.k.a. Harold Godwinson, was fresh off fighting his brother Tostig and Harold Hadrada at the Battle of Stamford Bridge in Yorkshire when William the Conqueror invaded. Good King Godwinson then had to bomb itself south double quick time and got his arrow in the eye and so on.
2: If only he'd had HS2. Yeah, that's true. He got there a lot quicker. Yeah,
1: maybe. Come on, let's, let's all get on. And the history of England could have been completely altered. <laughs> it could have been. Now, the Norman invasion then led to a whole other wild period for Yorkshire known as the harrying of the north oh
2: that's going to be the great heathen army's first record
1: (laughs) harrying of the north nice now very few people called harry were actually supposedly (laughs) involved in this strangely um the kind of harrying we're talking about is the kind that means to attack persistently (laughs) and now the harrying of the north came about when in 1069 the people of Northern England tried to cast off the Norman yoke of oppression. Willie the Conk responded by basically sending armies up to just kind of burn everything and murder everyone in Yorkshire. Did
2: you just name William the First Willy the Conk?
1: Yeah, that's that's what he should be known as. In sort of, you know, when you know him, in the kind of casual circles.
2: <laughs> Which you do. Yo,
1: Willie the Conk, how you
2: doing? You met over a bowl of gravy.
1: <laughs> now... Over 100,000 people died from starvation alone because of the harrying of the North, because all the crops were destroyed. It's worth saying that the Normans weren't completely and utterly awful for Yorkshire in that new towns sprung up after they'd destroyed the old ones, including Sheffield and Leeds and Hull. But only three towns from pre-conquest times survive at all. That's York. Bridlington and Pocklington and of course a wave of amazing abbey building also followed and Yorkshire has some stunning ruins to show for it including Fountains Abbey which was once the wealthiest abbey in Europe as well as the gorgeous Whitby Abbey, Mount Grace Priory, Raveau Abbey, Bolton Priory, the list goes kind of on and on one of the things i didn't realize about yorkshire before doing my research was the extent to which the scots kept invading it as well why not? Well, I guess if, if everyone's in it, why not? Why not? Um, now, they came down regularly with their big claymores and, for example, attacked in 1138. They were repelled. Then, after the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314 and the Great Famine of 1315, the Scots basically just kept raiding Yorkshire all the time, right up until the Black Death arrived <laughs> and killed a third of the population. You know, at that it point, it's
2: just a sort of weekend activity. Um, I'm a bit bored. I think I'll just pop down and. I got a great <laughs> idea. Reading.
1: And then they just reach a point where they're like, okay, there's nothing left of Aidlands. Might as well be <laughs> Now, during the 15th century, you also, of course, had the Wars of the Roses. We talked about that before on our Lancashire episode, but that murder fest lasted for about 50 years. Mm-hmm. Then, less than a century later, Henry VIII started up with his blinking dissolution of the monasteries and you had another uprising in New Yorkshire called the Pilgrimage of Grace. Have Second you heard of
2: album for the Great <laughs> Heathen Army. But I'm really loving all these epic names for things that happen. Oh, yeah. I, know, it's not just, oh, we were a bit bothered. No, it's the harrying of the North. Uh, yeah, I
1: think we can say that the people in Yorkshire have a good sense of drama, for yeah, sure. really
2: appreciate an epic title. <laughs> now,
1: are you familiar with the Pilgrimage of Grace?
2: I'm vaguely familiar with the Pilgrimage of Grace. Uh, I, I mean, far from its rather nice title, yeah. it's actually religious mass murder. That's, that's right. Yeah. This,
1: this is where people refused to accept the new English church and were ceremonially executed in large numbers. A process which continued right up until James the First came to the throne, which is wild. I mean, mm. God's own country, they say god's own country my hairy foot what a horrible lot of luck they've had in yorkshire
2: yeah i mean god's own country in the same way that job in the bible is god's best friend
1: yeah quite right now it's kind of had these back-to-back invasions and death and war for most of its history When things did eventually settle down a bit in the 16th and 17th centuries, the region became very prosperous, primarily through two main industries. The first was wool, and the second was coal mining, which led to a real boom for Yorkshire during the Industrial Revolution. Then, the year I was born, there were the miners' strikes, of course. Those were in 1984. And that whole debacle was a moment of national fervour, which represented, perhaps, at least in my mind, the last real kind of ruction in England's post-war history. It's fair to say that the amount of stuff we could talk about to do with Yorkshire is, frankly, overwhelming. Mm. You've got whole amazing cities like Leeds and Sheffield and Bradford. You've got the Yorkshire Dales. You've got the Ribble Valley with the sensational Ribblehead Viaduct. You've got Whitby. I mean, we could probably do an hour just on Whitby. We should. (laughs) (laughs) There's obviously startling amounts of vampire and witchy stuff going on there. Uh, And I'm only really mentioning the names of places right now. I'm only going to scratch the surface today, but... I'm happy to admit, I have never been to Yorkshire. And my number one top of the wish list place to go in England is York, which looks to me like the most amazing city. In York, you have historic layers of time in the architecture from pre-Roman Britain right on through. You've got the Roman city walls the most complete set of Roman walls in England to walk around. You've got the York Minster, this amazing cathedral founded in 697, destroyed several times and finished in its current form in 1472. You've got Clifford's Tower, this amazing Norman keep at the centre of the York castle complex. You've got The Shambles, this medieval street full of ancient buildings and shops. You've got Roundtree Park, a 20 acre common in the city, opened by one of my personal heroes, joseph
2: roundtree
1: And then jelly babies yeah wine gums jelly babies sweet 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 manufacturers yeah i don't know if you know much about joseph roundtree he's
2: um no just just his fine products
1: well okay so i mean one of the things that roundtree is famous for is kind of philanthropy so he noticed as he was trying to make his businesses more profitable and they were one of the most profitable businesses in england really during this period of time Um, that people were not reliably coming into work, as in his staff were uh, not as reliable as he wanted them to be. And this was affecting his bottom line. And what he realised is that if he and other rich industrialists like him just spent a little bit of money on things like sanitation, clean water, education for children, actually it increased the amount of money that his business made Mm. so he did lots of research it was years of it and through what he started we ended up with a whole wave of improvements in English public life including things like the establishment of public water fountains the first garden cities were part inspired yeah. by roundtree this was part of a whole load of reforms that involved mm. you know the the first so establishment of public people schooling people have
2: better and, living conditions and there's somewhere for their children to go and be looked after and the day it's almost like they'll be more productive at work well
1: this is exactly the point point. Mm. and so you know i think if you don't know much about him his life is very very interesting and his work is really important and the roundtree foundation have they made a biopic Uh, They haven't? No. And the Roundtree Foundation continues to be really important in shaping public policy on the left. But I I think one of the interesting things about Roundtree is he kind of came to understand that in social policy, a rising tide lifts all boats. So, Mm. you know, the very, very rich don't need to lose money. By helping people lower down the uh, societal ladder, I suppose. Mm. Anyway. um, Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, I'd like
2: to know more about him. Oh,
1: he's such an interesting Somebody would like to make
2: a nice BBC costume drama? That would be excellent.
1: (laughs) Well, he was born in York. (laughs) Now, then there's the York Museum. And that alone contains the Vale of York hoard of Viking treasure, as well as the Middleham Jewel. Uh, it's in a botanical garden containing the multangled tower of a Roman fortress, and even cooler, the multangled tower was first constructed by the Ninth Legion, the same Ninth Legion of Roman soldiers you may have heard of because they just mysteriously vanished in one They're of a big
2: the big bird, haven't they?
1: Coolest bits of folklore ever. Yeah, that's right. So you know, this huge Roman legion that had done all these fantastic things just vanished one day. Hmm. Why? How? Lots of people have speculated. Anyway. York is an insane place and I'm kind of flabbergasted by it and in much the same way as there's so much interesting history in Yorkshire the folklore up there is deep enough to drown in. Speaking of drowning, at Summerwater in Wensleydale you'll find Yorkshire's second largest lake with a great little folktale attached called the Angel of Summerwater. So the story goes, a hermit came to the town of Semmer, begging for food. The hermit went from house to house, but nobody would offer anything. So the hermit revealed itself to be an angel and drowned oh. the town.
2: <laughs> that doesn't seem like the usual act of an angel, but no. I guess it had just had a really hard day at that point. Nobody had given it any food.
1: Yeah, exactly. C- could you not hear I have a rumbly-tumbly? <laughs> Right, all of you, get drowned. Yeah, I drown. mean, your
2: point about the, the vengeful God seems yeah. to extend to, to God's staff as well, well it? <laughs> in New Yorkshire. Indeed.
1: Now, much like with the Beaumere Pool, which we talked about in our Shropshire episode, and also Dunwich, which we mm. talked about very recently in our Suffolk episode, the town is said to still be there under the lake and that you can hear the church bells ringing on stormy days.
2: Mm, love a drowned city. Yeah,
1: definitely. Now, on the subject of storms, maybe the most important Yorkshire figure to mention is Mother Shipton. Oh, yes. We've already talked a bit about her back in episode two because she ended her days in Somerset. And in episode five, when we were talking about the Rollwright Stones... Yeah, she's a very
2: well-travelled woman. Yeah, she's pretty interesting.
1: Now, to give her her proper dues, Mother Shipton is maybe England's most famous witch. She was born Ursula Soothtail in 1488 to a 15-year-old mother... Agatha Sooth tale in a cave near Naresborough. Mother Shipton's Cave is another place I'm dying to visit. Yes!
2: Me too. I um, am quite excited about the petrifying waters. Yeah, there.
1: it's pretty cool. So, the cave is near this spot called the Petrifying Well, which is amazing. It's a skull shaped pool. Oh, yes. <laughs> Starting strong. Uh, and it has these <laughs> incredible limestone shapes formed by falling water. Famously, the waters there turn things to stone. People leave. Items there and they petrify. Uh,
2: yes, and um, you can actually, I think in their gift shop buy a teddy bear yeah. that's been petrified, although probably not very cuddly. No,
1: I wouldn't imagine great to squatch.
2: No. <laughs> petrified stone bear.
1: <laughs> no. Now interesting fact, Mother Shipton's Cave was the very first place in England to have ever charged tourists an entrance fee.
2: Wow, they must have started pretty early They certainly
1: did. Now, Shipton herself was a renowned herbalist, soothsayer and prophet. She was said to be incredibly ugly, a hunchback with bow legs and bulbous eyes, which I reckon is maybe just a smear campaign against a perfectly upstanding local businesswoman. It's also said that she was the offspring of her mother, this young girl, Agatha, having had an affair with the devil... This I find much more believable.
2: Yeah, that devil, (laughs)
1: saucy devil, was up to no good. (laughs) (laughs) Saucy devil. Anyway, Ursula married Toby Shipton when she was 24, with people saying that she bewitched him into the marriage. She did allegedly do good in town, solving crimes and helping people, but after the mysterious death of her husband just two years after they were wed, she moved out into the woods... It was there that she started making prophecies before eventually travelling through England going about her witchy businesses. Her prophecies predicted notable storms, the ascension of Henry VIII, who famously called her the Witch of York. Um, And her book of prophecies contains all sorts of interesting stuff, a lot of it wrong, but she does say that the world as we know it will end in a colossal flood.
2: That's plausible.
1: Yeah, she may yet prove to be correct. Climate change and so on and so forth. Another witch in Yorkshire folklore is Churn Milk Peg, which is quite the name, I think. (laughs) Now, she's apparently actually a ghost of a witch who smokes a pipe and hangs around near nut trees. She's known for popping out and scaring people if they try to eat unripe nuts, with her name coming from the milk of unripe nuts, which is also known as churn milk
2: oh that must have been the strange old woman who popped out of the fridge this morning when i was getting my almond milk
1: <laughs> yeah that's right smoking her pipe and you were like what are you doing yeah
2: i was a bit curious <laughs> she
1: just slapped it out of your hand and then disappeared in a puff of smoke um now want some more weirdness always <laughs> okay well you'll like this one the Wold newton triangle
2: Is this anything like the Bermuda Triangle? It is
1: just like the Bermuda Triangle. Well, kind of. I mean, ships don't disappear there because it's inland. But this section of Yorkshire ranges from Bridlington to Scarborough to Ganton, all of which are said to be linked by ley lines. And there are a few amazing things about it. One of which is, it used to be famous for wolves. Oh, are they
2: popping in and out of existence?
1: (laughs) No, they aren't. But... It was really, apparently, rather wolfy around those parts, right (laughs) up until the mid-1700s, and not just regular wolves. So the legends go, the wolves of the Wald used to dig up corpses from local graveyards, and from eating the bones and corpses, would turn themselves into
2: werewolves. quite an amazing werewolf origin story I know, right so when you said the wolves of the world i thought oh what a lovely name for a children's book yeah and then you carried on with the digging up and the eating of corpses <laughs> and then thought maybe not a children's
1: book no well the most famous of these werewolves in the world was called old stinker <laughs> <laughs> now apparently old stinker <laughs> ate so many corpses and stuff. he just smelled really bad had terrible breath so you could smell oh, him nurse. coming the other wolf, the wolves gave him a wide berth well maybe they were like he's he's the alpha because he, he smells, smells the, the worst. worst now although most people agree the creatures that rode the wold were werewolves some say that they were just reanimated corpses so i'm gonna say that there were both werewolves and zombies in this place which what with Dracula landing at Whitby nearby means you've got your three key monster types all in Yorkshire three
2: types of monster three ridings yeah I'm seeing a whole alternate Yorkshire
1: <sighs> origin story that was the sound of my mind blowing um, now talking of creatures we've got another beast this, excellent this one fits alongside Black Shark and the beast of Bodmin Moor and so on it's called the Bar Guest of Trollers Gill. oh a
2: guess it's is another dog type, isn't Exactly
1: it, right. It's meant to be a demonic hellhound, and it haunts Yorkshire's woods and snickleways, appearing to bother the locals. This is in contrast to the Black Cat of Hell Mary Hill, which stays in a fixed location. <laughs> Typical cats, just kind of lazing around. But the legend has it that this black cat... Guards a chest full of buried treasure in a cave at the top of Hell Mary Hill near Sheffield. Only if anyone gets close to discovering this treasure, then the black cat appears with flaming eyes and defends the hoard. Yeah, that'd put you off. It certainly would. Now, going back to the Wald Newton Triangle, also within its boundaries is the Rudston Monolith. This one's amazing. It's 25 meters. Tall, so the tallest standing stone in England. It dates from 5,000 years ago, and some say it was thrown by the devil, annoyed at people for worshiping the Christian God. But um, if you think about the timeline, that slightly predates. <laughs> yeah, that kind of doesn't work out if you think about it. There's also the Gypsy Race River, and this one's fascinating. It runs underground through the Great Wold Valley, but the river is also known as The waters of woe.
2: Back with those epic naming traditions. I know, right?
1: Well done, Yorkshire. Now, this is because when the river does rise to the surface enough to be seen, it's said to predict catastrophe. It's previously appeared before the Black Death, before the English Civil Wars, before both World Wars and so on and so forth. In terms of cool traditions in Yorkshire, firstly, on the 1st of August every year, there's yorkshire day Hurrah. this is a day when the people of the county celebrate its culture which presumably involves being invaded several times across the afternoon <laughs> um, now the, the way that they do this actually is they go and do something called the declaration of integrity which includes going to york's gatehouses and around the walls uh, there's confectionery and parades and so on. So that's pretty great. But also on Ascension Day each year, there's the Penny Hedge tradition near Whitby. Have you heard of this? Penny, I Hedge heard of the
2: penny Hedge tradition. Well, it was a
1: new one on me too. But the tradition dates all the way back to 1159 when three boar hunters murdered a hermit at Eskdale. The Abbot of Whitby imposed them a penance of building these penny hedges. Uh, on the banks of the river. Not only did they have to do it, but all of their descendants had to do this tradition for all time. And the idea is that the penny hedges they build have to survive three tides of the river coming ah. in. So they have to be strong enough I to, see. to withstand yes. that. Um, Other chunky bits of Yorkshire folklore include the Penhill Giant, who was said to have lived in a fortress in Penhill in Wensleydale, which is also at a meeting point of ley lines. Is that why
2: the cheese is so magical? Maybe.
1: Yeah, your mum, obsessed with Wensleydale cheese. She
2: loves Wensleydale cheese. Maybe it's giving her enchanting properties.
1: Well... I mean, she's an enchanting woman, isn't she? Your she mother. is. Yeah. That must be all the cheese. <laughs> now, you've also got the cow and calf rocks on Ilkley Moor, which are these huge stones near one another, not far away from Keeley. They were said to have originally been one stone that was broken by Rumbold the giant. Story goes that Rumbold was being chased by his angry wife, only he wasn't looking where he was going, so trod on these huge rocks and split them apart. But that's not all. You've got another giant called Wade, who was first said to have made Wade's Causeway, which is this massive 6,000-year-old stone monument running for 25 miles across the North Yorkshire Moors. Wade is also supposed to have formed the Devil's Punch Bowl, otherwise known as the Hole of Hawkeham, which is a 400-metre deep, Whoa. almost mile-wide hole on the Yorkshire Moors. Story there goes Wade got drunk and his wife was also angry with him so he dug up earth from the ground to throw at her until she went away <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> and that's how you should solve all domestic disputes <laughs> yeah,
1: just throw rocks and mud um, anyway so the the holy dug uh, left the devil's punch bowl behind In terms of other notable earthworks, Yorkshire is also home to the Kilburn White Horse, a massive limestone hill figure also on the North York Moors, though the Kilburn White Horse is a little different in age to Wade's Causeway. While Wade's Causeway was created around the same time as Stonehenge, the Kilburn White Horse was dug in 1857. Oh, (laughs) why? It was just a bit of a lark. Apparently a school teacher took his students up there and they just did it. (laughs)
2: Fed up with Ofsted. Yeah, maybe. Come on, lads, let's get out of here and make a massive hill
1: figure. Yeah, we're going to make a horse. (laughs)
2: Um,
1: Now, other white horses in Yorkshire also include the Kelpie of Yore and the Kelpie of Strid. I love a
2: Kelpie legend yeah. because they're so beautiful and mysterious looking, but actually full of murder. That's
1: right. Now, these Kelpies, they're water spirits that stalk the banks of rivers. It said people used to see beautiful white horses mm. by rivers, go to them, and then the horses would then try to ride the people into the river and drown them, <laughs> which is not cool, Kelpies. Not cool at all. Oh, I expect
2: they have no reasons.
1: <laughs> the <laughs> now, hurrying of... <laughs> the population <laughs> the kelpying of the north <laughs> exactly <laughs> now whether the kilburn white horse was actually intended as a hoax or not is a bit up in the air but one major hoax from yorkshire was the cottingley fairies <gasps> i'm imagining you know this one, yes
2: I certainly do
1: I mean, that's quite famous the Cottingly fairies were a media sensation in the 1920s. One raised to the public eye by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote a whole book in support of it. In essence, the children of the Griffith and Wright families, Francis and Elsie, faked these fairy photographs of themselves playing with fairies, but they did so with such convincing skill it took 60 years, and for Francis and Elsie themselves, to explain quite how they'd done it it's very impressive it's great Um, as for real fairies apparently the best place to spot them in yorkshire is at janet's foss where there's a stunning waterfall with a cave behind it some say the mist rolling off Janet's foss forms into wraiths that head off into the wilds and harass people. But in the cave, there's Janet, the fairy queen. <laughs> I didn't know the fairy queen was called Janet. I know, right? Well, we've, we've talked about this before. Janet is an old generalised name for any kind of slightly magic mm. lady, a witch or a fairy. So she might not actually be called Queen Janet. Um, but You know, we talked about that on on one of our our Patreon episodes. Still, her fairies are known to be found playing all around the gladed pool nearby, and perhaps if you catch her at the right time, you might get an audience with the fairy queen who lives behind the
2: waterfall. Lovely.
1: All this fairy talk leads very neatly into my story for the week, which is based on court records of a witch trial dating from the 1640s, as relayed by Yorkshire Minister john webster in his book of 1677 the displaying of supposed witchcraft i'll start spinning my yarn right after this To call me an authority on the subject of witchcraft would be an exaggeration. Though there's no denying people do call me John Hephaestes, on account of my unmatched alchemical knowledge, as detailed in my famous book, The Metallographia, I am, in truth, but a humble cleric. In truth, I prefer to go by my given name, John Webster. And though some call me a seeker, meaning to belittle my endeavours, such a title is not wholly incorrect. My writings on a range of philosophical subjects have drawn to me a degree of what might be called undue attention. Yet though my saint's guide and Academiarium examen were viewed by some as controversial, it seemed God's will I write them. This is on account of my most firm belief that all men should learn the best truths and the truest rites. For this reason, I state with all assurance, I cannot be an expert in witchcraft, as, to put it simply, witchcraft does not exist. I could not be plainer on this point, and have shown time and again that the works of John Dee and Paracelsus are anything but heretical as finally demonstrated by both boyle and bacon these practices were naught but natural magic and in natural magic i am a firm believer as ought all learned folk endeavour to be certainly i know of instances of so-called witches i I was at york assizes for the trials of alice nutter and of janet preston and i journeyed to lancaster at my own expense to witness the prosecution of the other so-named witches. Yet all alleged witchcraft is but chicanery. There are a great many sorts of deceivers and impostors in this world, and diverse persons under passive delusions of melancholy and fancy. Yet there is no corporeal league ever made betwixt the devil and these persons. He does not suck on a witch's body or have carnal copulations with them. Nor do witches turn into cats or dogs or any such animals, or raise tempests or the like, which is what my most recent book sets out to prove. To speak of books, you needn't read mine, for the Bible says it all. There is not one word in the Bible that signifies a familiar spirit, or a witch in the sense that's vulgarly intended in common parlance. Likewise, unholy apparitions and the power of the devil... Certainly there is the witch of Endor in those pages, but the word witch is a mistranslation. For if she was a witch for raising up Samuel, then, well, Jesus Christ must be thought a witch in just the same way for raising up Lazarus, not to mention his most holy self. And forget not that our world is full of wonders mankind has yet not come to understand. Diverse creatures and minerals, such as beryls and crystals, might look miraculous to the foolish, the ignorant and the impious, but such things are natural and not diabolical, as can be proved by the sustained application of reason. Take the fine example from the times just after the Pendle trials. Less talked about, perhaps by virtue of the man who drew the court's focus, being vindicated. His name was, like mine, John. And he was a simpleton. He was known in York for being unlucky. He was tricked and cheated all through his life on account of being innocent to the dark hearts of men. And John... "'Touched in his way, such as he was, "'was the last person who ought to face down a judge, "'let alone a prosecutor such as Durant Holtham, "'Magistrate of East Riding. "'But I was there to watch, and I saw justice done. "'To describe John to you, when I knew him best, "'he was a dirty fellow. "'His hair was lank and long, his long nails bedded with mud.' He slept often under the open sky, up on the moors, coming to town only when he'd gathered sufficient roots and berries to trade with folk for a hot meal and bed. Yet one day, John came to York with something new to trade, a sympathetic powder, he called it, one to cure all ailments and he knew not to sell it for a low price, and clutched the wooden box in which he held it close to his heart to defend it from thieves and cutpurses. purses. It took some time for John to find customers, but find them he did, and lo and behold, the powder worked. I saw a sample of it later in the court. It was white and fine as milled flour, emitting an aroma like the scent of honey. And it was on account of the success of this powder, which brought a long line of people to see John, all with coin to spend for a pinch of his curative dust, that he found himself accused. Folk could not understand how the powder might help a woman with a headache who took it as snuff, then resolve the aches in a cripple's legs when the dust was rubbed upon them that a man with plague who rubbed it on his buboes would soon enough see them disappear, while a whole house with stopgallant were saved from an affliction all-new incurable. This happened not all at once, of course, for John would visit town with his wooden box and sell his ways, and when the box was emptied he would again stride out onto the moors and all kinds of weather, returning days later with his stocks replenished. The truth of what was happening on those moors was only revealed when John had been clapped in irons. By then he was less thin or soiled in appearance, having bathed and eaten many fine meals and bought himself new clothes. Though Mr. Holtham made quite the statement on John's evils, reading a declaration in which John admitted his powder was magic, when John himself was invited to speak he explained himself completely. Slowly, I must admit, for John never had a skill with words, but he enlightened the court and saved himself in doing so. He said, simply, that one night, before day was gone, he was going home from his labours being very sad and full of heavy thoughts, not knowing how to get meat and drink. Only then, he met a fair woman in fine clothes who asked him why he was so sad, and he told her... It was by reason of his poverty. To this she said that if he would follow her counsel, she would help him to that which would serve to get him a good living. He consented with all his heart, provided it were not a means to profit by unlawful ways, and she told him that it should not be by any such ways but by the doing of good and the curing of sick people. The woman warned him strictly to meet her at that spot the next night the same time. She departed from him, and he went home to the space between an outcrop where he used to lay his head, and the next night, at the time appointed, he duly waited, and she, according to her promise, came and told him that it was well he came so duly, otherwise he would have missed that benefit she intended to do him she bade him follow her and not be afraid and led him to a little hill there she knocked three times and the hill opened and they went in there came to a fairy hall wherein was a queen "'sitting in grey state, and many people about her, "'that the gentlewoman that brought John there "'presented him to the Queen, and she said he was welcome, "'and she bid the gentlewoman give John some of the white powder "'and teach him how to use it. "'This she did, giving him the little wooden box, "'bidding him to give grains of it to any that were sick, "'saying it would heal them. "'She then brought him forth from the hill, and so they parted.' The court was silent, as John told his tale, yet questions followed. John was asked by the judge whether the place within the hill, which John called a hall, were light or dark, and John said, indifferent, as it is in twilight. Being asked how he got more powder, he said that when he wanted, he went back to that hill and knocked three times, whereupon it opened. On going in, he said he was conducted by the aforesaid woman to the queen, and so had more powder given to him. "'This was the plain and simple story he told before the judge, "'the whole court and the jury, "'and there being no proof, save what cures he'd done to very many, "'the jury did acquit him. "'Mr. Hotham seemed to judge John rightly accused, "'for he had the white powder from some spirit, "'yet there was no contract with the devil, "'neither was it ever proved that the devil did any good, "'either real or apparent, "'but is the sworn enemy of all mankind, "'both in their souls and in their bodies.' Yet John's powder, it wrought that which really was good, namely the curing of diseases. And therefore, rationally, it could not be thought to have been given him by an evil spirit. As for the notion that John had the powder from those people we call fairies, there are many that do believe and affirm that there are such people Uh, Paracelsus hath a treatise, holding that the Fae are not the seed of Adam, and therefore he calls them non-Adamics, but he states that they are flesh and bones, and so differ from spirits, yet they can glide through walls and rocks as easily as we through the air, a function which Paracelsus called their chaos. Some call them Sylvesters, some gnomes, but the proof of their existence is entirely satisfactory, I remember the judge said, when all the evidence was heard, that if he were to assign punishment, then John might well have been whipped, or worse, had his tale been a deceit or an imposture. Yet it was true. So John walked free. It is my view, firmly held, that in all such cases of magic, there is an explanation such as this to be discovered. For if it can be proved that a person did murder another, the means should be shown. Elsewise it's delusion to call folk witches, and elsewise, in the fashioning of charms and powders and tonics, if a person has skills as a healer, as I do, then they ought to be praised and rewarded for it, not hanged from a noose until dead. As for John, after the trial he was seen no more, having strode up to the wilds and vanished from view.' If I were him, I would have gone to that fairy hall and stayed there. It seems their queen is at least a benevolent ruler. And though they say we must all now give praise to the latest Stuart to take the throne, I refuse. Some say he is a divinely ordained miracle, but I'll tell you this miracles are no more real than witchcraft. So, Eleanor, the displaying of supposed witchcraft by John Hifastis Webster. What do you reckon?
2: Well, I'm really interested um, in these kind of early people who tried to disprove witchcraft yeah. or tried to say "Look, it's actually it's healing it's not doing anybody any harm i think he's a bit of a front runner
1: yeah he is well one of the many interesting things about john webster who was a minister but who gave up being a priest to focus on science was that his discoveries were really important for example isaac newton used wow. webster's science books throughout his career so he was the real deal he was the real deal I also find it really difficult to imagine what it would have been like to have, on the one hand, been alive during the Puritan protectorate and then on the other to have lived through the restoration of the monarchy.
2: I always imagine that for most ordinary people, they just carried on regardless. Yeah, probably. Like, living probably their, their lives as their they life. would have done. Yeah, they weren't getting yeah, pressure to would... watch oh, the coronation it's, on the it's telly. changed <laughs> again. Oh, look. No, all right. We're not wearing black and tall hats anymore. It's all big wigs and parties. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> but I still need to get the cows
1: in. But I suppose if you're an educated person, you've travelled around, you've been to university, you've seen a bit more mm-hmm. of the world, you must have a philosophical argument or a sense of justifications that you've built up over time. And having to do a series of U turns. You can see why people found it so difficult to change their mind and so ended up executed or arrested and so on and yes,
2: so forth. Yes, when actually half the time it must have been, but five minutes ago you told me I shouldn't believe in that. Yeah,
1: yeah quite right. And perhaps that's why there are so many important books to have emerged during this period, mm. including Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress and Milton's Paradise Lost, which are quite serious, and Afra Ben's plays and novels, of course. And then you've got this wave of restoration comedies, which happen after the restoration. And as you know very well, they are pretty filthy.
2: Yes. Uh, China is never China in a restoration comedy.
1: <laughs> Elaborate.
2: Oh, I mean, it's it's just a metaphor for genitals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> thinking of um, which leaves the country wife, which, uh, I mean, even the title.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you think about that for just a second. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, (laughs) poets like John Wilmot, the Earl of Rochester. The guy guy wrote smut. He really did. Very rude poetry. Very funny, but still smut. And then, of course, you get Dryden, after which poetry becomes quite staid. But running parallel to all that, you've got the end of this fascination with witches. Obviously, we're Mm -hmm. still interested in witches today, but attitudes are very different.
2: Yeah, and as the enlightenment starts to progress, witchcraft becomes less credited, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's sort right. of gets pushed onto the fringes of society. I mean, in certain places, in some places, I think it was still
1: yeah well, in, en- in England. I think on the whole, you got a bit
2: of a backseat. This
1: emergence of the natural philosopher as mm. as a kind of idea. Yeah,
2: um, <laughs> I-, I liked that you brought up Paracelsus in your story yeah. because I mean, Paracelsus. Which... (laughs) Well, this is the
1: thing. And a lot of the people who came after, and we consider to be these great scientists and great inventors... Really
2: relied on the White's of Paracelsus, which um, was largely gathered from travelling around and talking to cunning folk and hedge practitioners. A, A lot of his theories came from just simply getting folk medicine and cures from people he met.
1: Yeah, and also I think Webster is really interesting as one of the first big defenders of John Dee. Mm. Uh, He he comes out and and talks about all the wild things that John Dee did. And if you don't know very much about John Dee... Which? fascinating man <laughs> with his obsidian mirror and his talking to angels yes, and,
2: Enochian script written yeah. from his talks with angels defining the whereabouts of treasure he's so fascinating, he I'm is. very interested in John D
1: he is isn't he now I think uh, Webster occupies this really interesting place because he's advocating rationalism and the serious, what we might call scientific, approach to proving witches don't exist. But then he's also completely advocating for these other magical things, such as fairies and (laughs) angels and goblins and so on, which he considers to be factual. Like all his contemporaries, they all believe these things.
2: It slightly reminds me of um, scientists who feared the Catholic Church, but understood heliocentrism. Yes, but didn't really want to say that they fully understood it because it would have them excommunicated. Yeah, okay. And it sort of reminds me of that. You're saying, well, you know, fairies may exist, but they've got flesh and blood like us and yeah. they're actually corporeal yeah. and perfectly rational. and well, We can explain them. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> well then, we really hope you've enjoyed this special episode and do please search up the Three Ravens podcast on your favourite podcatcher as we've plenty more where this came from.
2: Do also swing by our website at www.3ravenspodcast.com where we host our archive of all past episodes, keep our blog of expanded information for each episode and to visit our online shop for Three Ravens merchandise.
1: Until next time then, while our story's gone that way, we'll go this way.
2: And remember, don't whistle till you're out of the woods
1: thanks and credit go to andrew walsh's book forgotten yorkshire folk and fairy tales kai roberts folklore of yorkshire and the yorkshire.com website all of which were very useful in my research for this episode
2: our theme song is the traditional folk ballad three ravens performed by ben harbour and eleanor conlon and our logo was designed by ollie james dare
1: the three ravens podcast is a rust and stardust production written and produced by me martin Vaux. thanks for listening
2: God sent every gentleman, such hounds, such hawks, and such lean man, with a down, derry, 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 down, down.